We began to understand when life begins, when the combination of uh, the breath of life combines with the dust of the earth. At that moment, life begins. And it comes from the Lord. When a human being dies, it is like uh, when we take um, a sleep after long days of playing volleyball or uh, working or uh, weeding, gardening. Um, it, th those experiences of extreme exhaustion We've all had this, that we lay in bed and the next thing you know is morning and it feels like you've been in bed for five minutes. Has anyone ever had that experience and you wish you had another five minutes in bed? Um, well, that's death. And tonight we're gonna to look at it a little bit more in depth because this is where the first lie began. As simple as this truth is in scripture, the adversary has sought to contradict and present the opposite um, as an alternative way of looking at reality than the way God has described it. Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And that's the word that has been intriguing philosophers and sages and every religion in the world all have developed a consistent conclusion that happens in death, which is fascinating for me. I'm not a sociologist, but I took one class, and it was fascinating to me to see how globally um, every um, religion believes that when you die, you continue to live, which negates the experience of death. And God here is describing the wages of sin, what Paul um, summarizes in, in his letter to the Romans, that the wages of sin is death. God here is simply saying, if you disobey my word and you partake of something that I say is not advantageous to you, when you step out of my will, when you step out of the commandments that I give you, it is self-destruction. The only thing you could ever glean from disobeying me is the experience of death. The wages of sin is death. And death cannot be the same experience as life. Otherwise, why the warning? So it, God described a real experience of death. And Jesus has described to us um, what it is like to be in that state it is the unconscious, uncommunicative, unfeeling, unthinking, unplanning, un no knowledge. Um, there's some Psalms that you read in the handout that the dead do not praise you, which I've shown to sh share with some of my friends. And I said, you know, if I was in heaven, I would be singing at least one hymn of praise to the Lord. I would be singing continually to the Lord, shouting and raising my hands. And, and, but the dead don't praise you says David, and he's speaking about the, the dead that are faithful. It's not the wicked dead, it's the, the living, the, the faithful dead. So the Bible off the bat presents with us, confronts us with some questions that we have to grapple with. What do I understand is death? Because as God has said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die when the adversary comes to the human race, he says in Genesis 3, 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
which is the foundation of every pagan religion, Hindu, Aztec, in, uh, Inca, uh, Aborigines in Australia. Every religion refuses to believe that when you die, you die. The religions of the world, the pagan religions of the world, both ancient and new, all teach this unanimous lie that when you die, you are actually living somewhere else in another state. So you never really fully experience what should be the opposite of life, which is death. Death becomes a useless word because it doesn't mean the opposite of life. Death to a Hindu, death to a Buddhist, death to the, the, the Aztecs and the Incas in South America, and the Mayans. Death for them actually was living in some other realm with another entity or body and having different experiences, but I'm still alive. It's still me thinking, feeling, communicating. Well, I did that when I was alive. So if in death I can communicate, in death I can feel, in death I can remember, then what's the difference between being dead and alive? Because they should be opposites. And the Bible teaches that they are opposite. It is this confusion that the Bible calls the wine of Babylon. And the stem is tem. It comes from a, a counter statement by the father of lies who presents to humanity a, a more palatable, what is, seems to be a more palatable way of looking at reality in that when we die, we are still there. We haven't died. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This misunderstanding of Christianity is a direct affront to the gospel. I mean, listen to what Paul has just said. For the wages of sin is, but the gift of God is eternal. But a Christian, if they examine what they're being taught, is that if I die, I'm actually still alive for eternity somewhere else. Maybe a little warm, but I'm still there. The Bible doesn't say, but the wages of sin is life somewhere else. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. The only individuals that get life are those that receive the gift of God through Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And you cannot make everlasting life and perishing to be the same thing in which I think, feel, and express myself just in a different place. Death has to be death if the gospel is going to mean anything. And life has to mean life. And they cannot mean the same thing. Otherwise, the gospel is just gibberish. It makes no sense at all. As I said earlier, um, the Bible actually pronounces a stern warning for those that pronounce good evil and evil good. Up versus hot versus light versus truth versus life versus you cannot make life and death to be the same. Because none of the other things that we described are in any way, shape, or form the same. They're not even similar. They are actually opposites. And when you look at life and death that way, and then you look at the Bible, the Bible makes complete sense. Because the Bible says that the dead know nothing. Therefore, 
There is no life experiences when you're dead. You're not able to communicate. You're not able to think. Your thoughts perish on the day that you die. What the Bible presents to us is logical, reasonable, and it appeals to our intelligence because it's coherent and consistent. More than that is what Jesus says it is. Jesus says, Lazarus sleeps, and just a few verses later, Jesus says, Lazarus is dead. Same experience. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death death is not the same as life. Paul calls it the enemy. And it's the enemy because it deprives us of the experience of life. I was still in nursing, and I was a CNA. And it was towards the end when I was about to graduate as a licensed practical nurse. And I had a lot on my mind. And that night I went to work at... um, at the wing that I was normally assigned to, and I knew the residents very well. But one of the residents over the weekend had taken a real fast downturn. We had learned earlier, I can't remember all the terms, but there's one kind of breathing, small breathing, I can't remember all the names. I'm not even sure I say it correctly, but when we begin, when the body begins to shut down, um, things begin to not function correctly. And part of it is your heart is no longer pumping as strongly. There's not enough, not, enough, not sufficient blood perfusion through your limbs. Your heart's tired. 80 plus years of pumping. And this man was old and his system was shutting down. And the head nurse that night said, um, he's assigned for a shower take that out, give a shower to another resident. Um, he has not eaten for two days. And the reason he's not eating is not because he's not hungry. He hasn't had any fluid intake, not because he's not thirsty, but because to do, to ingest food or drink water, he has to stop breathing. And right now he's just completely out of air. The, the oxygen distribution is not working as it should. His body is shutting down. I went to his room and he was clinging as if he was about to fall down a deep chasm. He was clinging to the guardrail of his bed. The nurse said, if you can get him to bite or take at least two scoops of ice cream, it will be counted a good thing. Don't, don't try to give him the whole little cup of ice cream that, this night. I forgot about the assignments. I forgot all of those things. I just looked at this man. I began to pray for him. There was utter terror in his face. I had to bathe him. I had to change the robe. And to change the robe, he had to let go of the arm rail, and he refused. So I I put his arm, and he he could hold onto my arm as I disrobed him and, and bathed him. And he clung to me hard. It was as if he was sinking. He was feeling himself as if, and he would he didn't want to die. I just looked at him and just gently comforted him. Man, if we didn't have hope. He kindly accepted to take a little bite of ice cream. 
And it terrified him to swallow because it meant he had to stop breathing. And he was breathing hard and heavy. And you cannot breathe like that on a sustained level before your muscles that breathe, your intercostal muscles fatigue and your diaphragm fatigues and you start using other muscles to expand your rib cage. And when you're in bed and you're slouched, it's hard and, and your body just gets tired. But your body's craving for oxygen and you know that if you stop breathing, you will die. I gave him a hug and I said, I'll be right back. I put a towel over him, took the ice cream, went outside to my cart, put those things there and, and got a clean robe to bathe, to clothe him. And when I went back into the room, he was gone. My brother told me that I would have that experience. And he says, you never forget your first resident or patient that dies on you. I went home that night um, crying for that man. Kicking myself, why didn't you quote John 3.16? Why didn't you quote some verse um, of hope? What was wrong with you? You never know how you're going to respond to the confrontation of our mortality until you're there. That night I understood why Paul called death the enemy. Death and life are not the same. Life is a gift. Death is the enemy. So we have to go with scriptural definitions. They protect us. Mortal. Mortal means subject to death or of, of or relating to humanity as being subject to death. Immortal means living forever, never dying or decaying. Mortal and immortal are not even closely related to each other. They are opposite, as opposite as death and life. And the Bible uses these terms as well. Ezekiel 18:20 should be a verse that many Christians should prayerfully consider and process in their minds and and if necessary adjust their beliefs to scripture and not for scripture to adjust to their belief. Ezekiel 18:20 says, "The soul who sins shall So let me ask you my friends, does the Bible teach that the soul is immortal? They cannot be subject to death. Yet many millions of Christians believe that there's, there's a quality to the soul, and the quality to the soul it is that it is immortal. And it's a doctrine that is simply called the immortality of the soul. And it is not supported by Scripture because this and many other verses speak about the, de- the, the soul dying, the soul perishing. The soul is mortal. And if it dies, it is not alive again. It is non-existent. It is not there anymore. The Bible does not teach that the soul is immortal. The teaching of the immortality of the soul is a pagan teaching that entered the Christian church during centuries of apostasy when the church departed from scripture and began to look at Plato and Aristotle and the many of the Greek philosophers for teaching and guidance in matters of life experience. 
And because Greeks did not invent this, the Greeks absorbed it from the Egyptian theology and Babylonian theology and Assyrian theology. That's all they did. They recycled the same lie that goes all the way back to Genesis 3 when the serpent told humanity, you will not surely die. You, you madam, you, sir, are immortal. You will continue. That is a lie. God says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. The wages of sin is death. And God was not meaning life in some other state. 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has what church? And who is Paul speaking about? Humans? Not even close. The only being in the universe that is immortal is who, my friends? The only one that gives life because he himself has life within him. He is the genesis. He is the generator, the source of life for every living being, including the angels. Angels are not immortal beings. We will look later when we have the study on hell how even Satan and his angels are going to be destroyed by this fire. So not even angels have immortality inherent in them. All created, all creatures are mortal. The only being in the universe, according to scripture, that has immortality is who? Because the Bible, Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, inserts that exclusive statement, alone. Who alone who only has immortality. These are passages that are simple, beautiful, consistent, and coherent. Beautiful because truth is beautiful. That invites Christians to reconsider what they are hearing and reading and say and ask themselves, is what I am hearing, what I've come to the conclusions, the conclusions that I have about reality, do they align with Scripture? Am I being taught to believe that my soul is immortal? Well, I just read in Ezekiel that the soul that sins, what will happen to it? It will? Does that sound like a soul that is immortal? So I can still hold on to the doctrine of the immortality of the soul, or I can adjust my beliefs to the scriptures. And I want to encourage you, adjust the beliefs, with, adjust the beliefs to scripture. Adjust the belief, your beliefs to the word of God. We are safe there. If there's anyone that has immortality, according to scripture, who is that? The only being in that universe, God alone. So heaven, what about heaven? Acts 2, 29 through 34. Peter preaching after Pentecost. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, for David did not ascend into the heavens. I had read the book of Acts so many times, and when I really began to study the Bible, it made a big difference. And when I read that, it was like, Erp! put my brakes on, I was like, let me read that again? David, the man after God's own heart. David, the sweet psalmist. David, who composed many of the psalms in the Bible. When he died, Peter, with the unction of the Spirit, inspired by God, declares unequivocally that 
If you want to look for David, David's not up there. David is where? Buried in his tomb. David never ascended. So where is he? He is, according to Jesus, same as his friend Lazarus that he loved so much. I mean, stop and think for a second. You love someone. I know that my friend Jeremy loves Kylie. Jamie too, beyond a shadow of a doubt. They love her. We know that a war has erupted in Israel with the Palestinians because the Palestinians have broken through the barriers of Israel and taken some hostages, some of whom are from other nationalities. If we lived in the States and Kylie was abducted by terrorists and mistreated and abused and beaten, starved, and then somehow through various resources, Jeremy and Jamie were able to reclaim Jamie from that horrible experience and bring her to a place of safety and love and, and just peace like here. What would you think if Jamie one day, Jeremy told Jamie the next day, let's send her back? According to standard Christian belief, Lazarus has died, and where has he gone? A place of bliss, happiness, and joy, untouched by the pollution of sin, in communion with holy angels and others that are faithful to God. And after Lazarus is there and enjoying, after four days of being in paradise, one of the angels says, excuse me, you have to go back. And Jesus loves Lazarus. If Jesus loves Lazarus, why not just leave him there? Right? And these are the questions that Christians have asked me because they're approaching scripture with ideas that are not supported by the Bible. I can adjust my beliefs to scripture or try to force the scriptures to my beliefs. And when I do that, the Bible will, make not, will not make sense. It will not be consistent. There will be things that the Bible says that contradict itself and make no sense at all. Like Jesus telling the angels, bring Lazarus back, please. I just wanted to show that I had the power to raise the dead. Welcome back, Lazarus, to a body that aches and pains, a body that gets disease, I hope you enjoyed your four days over there. I would question Jeremy's judgment and his statements of, um, well, I love my daughter so much, but I'm going to send her back to where the Hamas is at. And I don't know what Jamie, I know Jamie would, would send Jeremy back. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with you? The Bible does not record anyone as having gone into heaven except three individuals by name, Enoch, Genesis 5.24, Moses and Elijah, Luke chapter 9, verse 30. Every other righteous person from the Old Testament and New Testament to our day is asleep waiting for the resurrection. There are, this is not something that you may think, oh, you're 70 Adventists, you are the only one that believed this. Not so. 
There's a great scholar named N.T. Wright who has, a few years ago, written extensively uh, against the belief of the immediate ascension into heaven of the righteous. Then actually he has criticized it because he says that it has, it has undermined one of the clearest and most, for, most forceful teachings, both from Jesus and New Testament writings, called the resurrection. And many Christians have been led to believe in the immediate ascension of saints, completely ignoring the reality of where the hopes of all Christians lied on this teaching of the resurrection. The resurrection means nothing if you're there already. And so this non-Seventh-day Adventist uh, scholar named Antti Wright has already, uh, and others have joined in on him, recognizing that you're right. The New Testament does not assert that the hope is in the immediate ascension right after death, but rather in the sleep condition of saints until resurrection morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 12-20 says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen, not gone to heaven. Jesus himself asserts the condition in which those that have believed in him are in. Those that believe in Jesus Christ, those that have accepted the grace of God and have gone from under the condemnation of sin unto death to the reception of the gospel unto eternal life, they, are, they don't have eternal life right now. Right now, all of these individuals are, this is Paul, in relationship to, uh, uh, because of Christ, the first fruits are still asleep. First Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Paul is not saying, I don't want you to grieve because people are in heaven. People are, Paul is saying, because there were hundreds and thousands of family members being martyred by Rome. Death was a real thing for the early Christian church. There was a lot of tears. There was a lot of heartache. And Paul is saying, it hurts, yes. And we, we can grieve, you do not deny your faith in Jesus when we cry at the death of a loved one. It is natural. God did not wire us to experience death. That's why we dread it. We love to be alive. We enjoy life. And it seems that just when you figure out what life is all about, it ends. And you wish you knew now back then, correct? How many of us would have lived our lives so differently? But Paul says, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Who is he speaking about? Christians that have died. And he says, I don't want you to grieve as those that have no hope. You will cry and you will weep. But what will sustain you is a reality that will bring hope continually that will sustain you. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain alive until the coming of Jesus will by no means go ahead of or proceed those who are, are, present tense, those who are, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Many people were like, when Jesus comes, he will take me, but what about my grandma? What about my husband? 
And Paul is saying, no, we're not going to go there before those that are falling asleep in Christ. When Jesus comes, those that are asleep in Christ will be raised to life first. That's the resurrection. That's going to happen first when Jesus comes. Then we who are alive and remain shall be cut up together with them. Who is them? Those that were asleep in Christ, but now have been resurrected. And meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, do what with these words? Now, this is the truth from across the scriptures. And God says, this will comfort you. Anything that deviates from this will not yield true comfort. It may feel like comfort, but it actually will not. Truth blesses. Things that are not true hurt. Lies will always hurt. And the lie of the adversary, you will not die, hurts. It injures our faith and it makes us confused as to what happens when we die. And when we are confused means there's uncertainty and there is anxiety and we have no peace. But when we see the truth that it is consistent and it is coherent and it is, it makes sense and it agrees with Jesus, then we can have comfort, God's comfort, not human comfort. John 11, 23 to 25, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in when? Did Martha talk about Lazarus as if he was? No. Martha says, I know he will, meaning he's where? In the tomb. If he was there, then I know my brother will come down. But Martha doesn't, doesn't rebuke or counter what Jesus says. Martha completely agrees with Jesus, and we're invited to do the same. Let's agree with what Jesus says. He will rise again in the resurrection when? At the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may, he, Jesus doesn't say death and life are the same. You just get to experience life in a different place, not to Jesus. Even though they may die, meaning they are no longer alive, meaning they are in a condition that we can liken it to sleep because there is no consciousness, no feeling, no thinking, no active, no nothing. It is, we're not there. We're not existent. There was a day and time in Earth's history where Adam did not exist, where Eve did not exist. And when we die, it is that condition again. We humans resist that naturally because God has made us to exist forever. Even in this broken planet, there are still remnants of the blessings and the beauty of God in creation, in nature, and in relationships. I remember when Daleen's grandpa got to hold our oldest when she was a newborn in Puerto Rico during that Christmas. And he had so much joy. He, he lightened up. He was already homebound. They had care coming over. And for a man that was working at the police that had in charge of, of other officers that, that, that commanded and, and had authority to have someone bathe him, it's very humiliating. It, it, is, it, it does affect you. 
to not have someone help you out of bed and you feel so helpless and useless and someone at times has to feed you. It is horrible. I'm not looking forward to that at all. And he was not a happy camper because of that reality. License taken away and all these things. But when he saw my youngest, my oldest daughter as a baby, and saw her smiling and drooling on him and tapping his face and, sla- and smiling at him. Oh man, when grandpa see the grandchild smile at them, everything goes away. No more arthritis, all pick her up. Nothing aches. And then we don't wanna go. We wanna be around. We want to stay around for this little one to grow. We want to see this little one grow and grow and develop. We begin to become sad with the reality, I won't. We were not made to die. That's why Jesus told John, fear not. I have gone through that experience, so you don't have to be afraid of it. I have the keys. I can raise the dead. That's the hope. What the Bible does provide, and this is where many Christians confuse themselves, there are certain statements that express a reality as if the the encounter with Jesus, you die and you're immediately with the Lord. The moment I die, I'm immediately with the Lord. It's because the Bible presents the death experience from both sides. The majority of it is for us who are alive and remain. But the Bible also offers explanations of what it will be like for you and for me should we die. We don't have to die from age. We can die from other things. What will happen when I die? The Bible presents two sides. And I have added this additional graphic in your your handout. Hopefully, it will help. Um, So you have two individuals, two family members, two brothers who have grown up and One of them gets diagnosed with cancer and it doesn't work and ends up dying. Their experience of death is very different. Everything we've studied so far is the comfort being offered by heaven to the brother that stays alive. Your brother is asleep in Christ, right? Your brother is asleep in Jesus, awaiting for what event? Resurrection Resurrection morning. Those truths from the Bible are offered to those that are alive, that get to have to go through the grieving process of losing a loved one. But the Bible also offers hope and encouragement for those that will die. And for the individual that is dead here, The Bible says that the dead know nothing. Jesus says that Lazarus is asleep. The the book of Psalms we read says that when a man perishes, in that day his thoughts perish. So for a person that dies, if I were to die today, I'm, I'm not aware of what happens in my funeral. I don't see or hear any of the people sobbing. I don't know the flowers. I don't hear any of the words. In fact, I will be buried, and who knows 
It could be 50 years, 300 years for some believers, thousands of years for some Bible characters. But for everyone that dies, this time period is the same identical experience. Half a second. And I'm not saying that that's a biblical time amount. I'm just trying to illustrate that Paul says that is a blink of an eye. That man that clung to me, I prayed for him. I did pray for him. And I prayed for the Holy Spirit to minister to that man with hope and assurance in Jesus. I still kick myself to this day for not having brought up Jesus at that moment. But Jesus did not need me to save anyone. The Bible describes God as the God of our salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord, says the book of Jonah. For that man that 23 years ago was clinging to my arm because he could not get enough oxygen, he hasn't been 23 years. It's been the blink of an eye. And so there are passages in the Bible that says that when I'm martyred, I will be with the Lord. But all they're describing is I will not experience the centuries that will go by. I mean, let's take, for example, someone that we know died completely in faith and trust in Jesus, which was the the deacon named Stephen. As he was being stoned, he witnessed those that were there that day. And he noticed that people were able to move freely and had full exercise of all their limbs because someone was holding their coats. Who was that person approving of what they were doing? Stephen only got to know him as Saul. Stephen, all he knew was this was this gentleman Saul that hated Christians. But he even prayed for Saul. So for Stephen, all these thousands of years have not existed. The moment he said, I commend to you my spirit, the breath of life that you've given me. And he fell asleep, says the Bible. The millisecond after his brain shut down and he stopped experiencing reality, stopped experiencing time, the next thing he knows is what we have yet to experience, the second coming of Jesus. So I hope this doesn't confuse you, but as far as the experiences of those loved ones that have died, this time is not being experienced by them, which means that for them, they have died, and the next thing they hear is something glorious and magnificent that we have not experienced yet. Paul says that all of us will get to experience the day of the Lord together. Um, why the resurrection? Three reasons. Number one, because it is better. Number two, because it shows that God is merciful. And number three, because it, it shows that God is just. And this, this third one, we will really expound when we talk about hell. The resurrection is better and merciful. Hebrews eleven thirteen, and then Hebrews eleven thirty nine through 40 says the following. These all, what happened to all of these? Died in the faith, not having received the promises. They have died in the faith, but they have not received the, what promise? 
and all of these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Meaning, you die, you get to heaven, you're there already. Too bad for you guys that are still down there. That's not better, says Paul. That is paganism. And God's gospel is better than all the pagan religions. Paul says God has something better that those that have died without receiving the promise and those that are alive without receiving the promise, that we all receive the promise at the exact same time. We disconnect heaven's interest in what is happening on earth. See, it would not be nice for Jesus to take people to heaven. Most Christians would be shocked at what, that I just said that. But the Bible says that this is better than going to heaven immediately. God could have done it that way if he wanted to. But God says that would not have been good. There's a better way. Why? I would have liked to go immediately to heaven. God says, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. Because we disconnect what heaven is experiencing right now. This planet where Satan and sin have caused so much suffering and pain affects God and heaven. How often? Jesus says that when one sinner repents, you know who rejoices? The angels in heaven. What takes place down here has a direct bearing on up there. Heaven, they're not watching ESPN football right now while we're down here suffering. Heaven is not escaping the mess of, of sin we humans do. But heaven doesn't. Heaven is very much invested in our salvation because there's something that heaven understands and that is that this gift called eternal life is real and that it's worth it and that we humans don't value it because we don't understand what it really is. And we squander years of being able to acquaint ourselves with God, the gospel, receive him into our heart. We wait until we're deathbed and then finally, finally give our lives to him, regretting that these many years were wasted in foolishness when we could have used their years of life for service and ministry and helping others come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Heaven is very much affected by what happens down here. If heaven rejoices over a sinner that repents, what happens to heaven over a sinner that resists and rebels? All of heaven is focused on what is happening on this broken, hurtful world. If our loved ones were in heaven, would they be able to enjoy the bliss and peace of heaven while seeing the misery we are still experiencing down here? Would they rejoice and laugh with the angels as we suffer and cry on planet earth? The answer is, that's why it's better. Actually, being in heaven would be worse. Because from heaven, you will get a panoramic view of everything that happens for centuries, for millennia. And you couldn't change the channel. Heaven would be like having a giant screen TV with just one channel, Channel Earth. Worldwide, unedited, uninterrupted views of life here on sinful planet Earth. What would that be heaven? 
That is what we would see. Would my great-great-grandpa in heaven be able to enjoy divine smoothies and enjoy heaven and say, oh, look at the palm trees, look at the new Jerusalem. Would, none of the angels are enjoying heaven either. The Father in heaven is deeply invested in our salvation. Jesus Christ is interceding for us. Every angel has been enlisted in the salvation of humanity. And humans are up there in vacation. Hey, do, we, do you guys play pickleball up here? Do you golf? It's offensive. When Russia invaded Ukraine, we had Ukrainians that had lived in the U.S., And when they saw their neighborhoods getting bombarded and destroyed by the armies of Russia, did they simply say, turn the channel, we're going to binge on Netflix? How did the Ukrainians here in the U.S. feel about their parents, about their children living there and seeing bombs drop on a daily basis? Could they enjoy the freedom of America? Could they say, I'm sure glad I'm not there? Or were their hearts aching, trying to find a way to send help and support for their loved ones? Beloved, their war is still on. Satan is on his last leg. The book of Revelation says that he has come down with great wrath because he knows his time is short. There is no one in heaven enjoying blissful peace because there isn't any because heaven is invested in you, that you are there, and that your loved ones are there as well. Who in heaven would enjoy seeing the poverty due to the exploitation and abuses of those in power? These are pictures from around the world. Children from Africa and Indonesia and South America, from India, digging through the trash heaps of the wealthy and rich daily trying to find some ration of food, rotten or not. Pictures that we become callous to, pictures that we don't want to see, pictures that make us want to change the channel, read something else, what's on television, what's on HBO, what's on Hulu. I don't want to see this reality. Heaven doesn't get that option. And none of our loved ones would get the option of saying, change the channel, please. Can we look at something else? No, because all of heaven is invested and focusing on saving planet Earth from sin and Satan. There is no other channel. Who could enjoy heaven? That's why Paul says that everyone, resurrection morning, when the nightmare is done, that's better. Right now, it would be a perpetual torture of weeping and sadness over watching the brokenness of our planet. The slums, the children abandoned, the illnesses, the tragedies that should have never been. Who could enjoy heaven right now? Tell me. No one. That's why the Bible says the way God has designed our salvation is better. I believe God's way is better. How about you, my friend? Do you believe that the way God has designed all of this is with our interest in mind? There will come a day, says Paul, where this will come to an end, where a strange sound will stop 
the corruption and stop the madness. And beings that right now, we don't even know what they look like. The Bible simply says that there will be angels with trumpets sounding that the nightmare is done and the sky will roll back as a scroll and the Lord shall descend. And when he does, then the nightmare of sin has ended. Then those that are asleep in Christ will rise incorruptible. When we saw our, last, our parents last, they were nothing to what they looked like in their youth. No muscle tissue, barely strength. Some of them with their mind completely gone. What it would be like to see them face to face again with a glorified body that will never decay, that will never disease, and that will never die. What a glorious encounter that would be when all of us, with all of the humans, recognize belief and faithfulness to Jesus was worth it all, was worth it all. More so when throughout the centuries, those that have not received the promise look around the world and say, boy, it did not look like this when I went, when I died. How much time has gone by? It felt like I was asleep for just a few seconds. And next thing I know, I heard Jesus call my name. And we are here. And the parents that have had to have the painful experience of letting go of their little ones, the mothers that have had the miscarriages, painful things, painful, horrible things that this earth affords. This is the day where all the wrongs are finally made right by Jesus, our faithful friend, your Savior and mine. This is the blessed hope. This is the experience that all of the Christian believers, Old and New Testament, had their focus on. That they died, Paul says, without receiving the promise because God has something better. That them, together with us, would together experience the end of the nightmare of suffering because of the curse of sin. And on that day, beloved, man, oh man, will I sing at the top of my lungs. Will I shout hallelujah and praise you, Father, and thank you, Jesus. Thank you for giving so much so that we could have this hope. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want this blessed hope to sustain me daily, but mostly when in a few years, I will most likely have to officiate one of the most painful funeral services when either my mom or my dad fall asleep in Christ. And I will grieve, I will, I will weep, but like Paul says, I will grieve with hope, the blessed hope. The next time I hug my mom, she will not be this shriveled shell of what she used to be that I have to, she's so much shorter. She forgets things that we spoke of five minutes ago. 
I'm so ready for the blessed hope to become the blessed reality. Revelation 21.4 says that at that day, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes because there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain because forever the former things have passed away. Praise God. Praise God. We need to think and read these passages more frequently, more often, that we can be sustained as we grieve. Tonight, I want to invite, if this is something you would like to respond to the truth from the Bible, from the truth from God's word, I too long for that blessed hope, the glorious appearing of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to not lose sight of that day. I don't want to get so engrossed that I forget that there is this blessed hope that has sustained believers for centuries. Believers in jail, languishing, missionaries being murdered by the people that came to help. It was this blessed hope that just anchored their hearts and said, I will not move. I want this gospel to be proclaimed because Jesus says that when this gospel is proclaimed to all the world, then the end comes. That's what we're preaching and that's what we're sharing because we want Jesus to come. I believe the truth as it is taught by Jesus that at death we sleep in Christ until he will resurrect us at his second coming. I believe that anyone else this evening want to say, Lord, I believe. I will adjust because I see that this is better. Your way is better. I will live faithfully trusting God's word knowing one day I will be reunited with my loved ones who now sleep in Jesus. I will place my faith upon that rock, upon that anchor that is immovable. Jesus will return our loved ones back to us with a glorified body that will never die again. Until that day, we hope with assurance because the God that has promised has kept all the promises he has given to us. Father in heaven, I want to praise you, Father, for the way you have taught us tonight, the way your word has demonstrated how unified, how coherent, but more than anything, how beautiful this truth is. Thank you that instead of this being a presentation of depressing themes of death that we don't like to talk about, Lord, tonight, even death is filled with light by your word. Death is not the last chapter that is written in the lives of our loved ones. It is the beginning chapter of the resurrection that will for eternity, Father, open infinite chapters of experiences of joy and peace no longer under the shadow of the curse of sin. Tonight, Father, from all of us, we want to say thank you. Thank you for going through what you went through at the cross with your son Jesus for us. You didn't have to. But because you loved us, you couldn't leave us without this hope. Father, we don't want to live our lives selfishly. We want to live our lives guided that this blessed hope will be our North Star. Father, that it will allow us to weep. But the more we cry, the more desire we will have for others to experience salvation in your son, Jesus. 
that none of our co-workers, that none of our family members will live their lives terrified of sin, not knowing, Lord, that there is the remedy for it. And that, Lord, there's this experience awaiting all of us together. Father, I pray for your spirit to continue to expand our appreciation and understanding of your truth. And I pray that tonight, Father, we would have sound, peaceful sleep, understanding the gospel and believing that one day, Father, we will be reunited with our loved ones because of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our God. And in his name, Father, we say thank you. Amen, Lord. Amen.